Well, those of you who have been around for the better part of this year know that we are back to some familiar places in the Scriptures. We're actually kicking off today the second half of a sermon series that began all the way back in the month of February of this year, February 2023. I'd like to remind you, just uh, again to get us back up to speed, that First and Second Timothy, along with the book of Titus, are three of Paul's last and actually his most intimate of letters, personal letters that we have recorded for us and preserved for us in our New Testaments. They are personal because the Apostle Paul wrote these specific letters to two of his ministerial sons in the faith. Paul had many missionary partners, but Timothy and Titus seemed to stand head and shoulders above the rest And Paul loved them intimately, and he wrote to them here in the pastoral letters. By the way, Timothy, you may know at this time in his life, had really served with with, uh, the Apostle Paul for the better part of two decades. Timothy had been with Paul on mission trips and and, and teaching in the churches for the better part of two decades before these letters are written. All the way back to Acts chapter 16 when Paul scooped him up there in either Lystra or Derby. We're not exactly sure which particular town. They're both referenced in Acts chapter 16 verse 1 where Timothy was located. Now these letters are also called the pastoral epistles because they contain some of Paul's clearest and most urgent instructions concerning life in the local church. These are pastoral letters. Here we discover a virtual manual for practical ministry for those of us who love and are a part of the household of God. And so we need to read them and be familiar with them. These books, in fact, contain a repository of inspired instructions about things such as prayer, public reading of Scripture, and who may be qualified and how those who are qualified should lead and love the church. Much of that we focused on in the first half of this study. Paul helpfully addresses interpersonal relationships between all members of Christ's church, between men and women, between young and old, between rich and poor, even between slave and free. The pastoral epistles has language for all. Paul touches on hot topics in his day, which are relevant for our day, such as money and slander and sexual temptation, and even the second coming of Jesus Christ. In short, friends, the pastoral epistles give us inspired apostolic guidance for godly living in the church today. Seems to me like that's pretty relevant for our attention this morning. Even John Calvin, the great French reformer, said of the pastoral letters, they are highly relevant to our times. 500 years later, they still ring true and relevant for us today. But many of you may remember from the first half, and you can't get three verses into 1 Timothy before first encountering this, that one of Paul's chief concerns for the church there back in Ephesus had to do with the issue of apostasy. Apostasy. Everybody's favorite topic on a Sunday morning, right? Apostasy. Well, the church of God, therefore the man of God, is to be preeminently concerned with the purity and with the integrity of life and teaching in God's house. Let me say that again. The church of God and the man of God 
must be preeminently concerned with the purity and the integrity of teaching in God's house. That begins with being able to spot a fake and oppose a fake. To spot them and to oppose them. Deviant, devilish doctrine is a cancer in the church of Christ. It must be excised by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it takes gospel courage to do that. Godly ministers are then called to point it out and to root it out with the help of God's own Spirit. Therefore, with these brief words of reintroduction and reacquaintance with the pastoral epistles, let me invite you to look once again at the text of 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Beloved, again, hear now the word of God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the, knowledge and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Again, this is God's holy and precious and inerrant truth. So what's the best way, friend, to spot a counterfeit? What's the best way? Well, you have to know something and know something intimately about the truth of something. The best way to catch a lie is to be a person, a man, or a woman of the truth. The reason being is we are in a world full of counterfeits, full of fakes. And so the best way, we can't possibly know where all the false things are, so we cling to what is true. We really get to know what is true. The exact center point of the letter of 1 Timothy actually is found right before our passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, there Paul had provided his great purpose statement for the letter of 1 Timothy. And he outlined the very essence of, that true Christian doctrine of what Christ, true Christian doctrine is, it is, in a word, Christ. Christianity is Christ. What we need to be concerned with is knowing and loving Jesus Christ. Not on our terms, the sort of Jesus that we would like to make and fashion in our way, but the way that he has self-disclosed, the way that he has revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture, and in the experience of His Spirit. We need to really get near and get to know Jesus Christ. And Paul really even points us to that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Look at what Paul says. This is, again, by way of reminder, Paul is, is shortly after one of his uh, imprisonments there in Rome, and shortly before his reincarceration, He's very likely in the region of Macedonia, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, and he writes to Timothy around 63 A.D. these words. 
Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. What is Paul saying if not, this is what we know to be true, not just about the church, but about the head of the church, about Jesus Christ. The best way for you and I to be prepared to stand against false doctrine is to embrace and behold good doctrine, and that good doctrine in the person and work of Christ. Why should we be concerned about our behavior in the household of God? The answer, of course, is because as the church of God, we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And make no bones about it, it's not as if we hold up the truth. No, the truth holds us up. As Paul reminds us over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, he says, the truth is in Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the shadow of his suffering, Jesus says to his disciples in John 17, verse 17, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the psalmist, of course, says in Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. When was the last time you said to yourself in the mirror, I am a man or a woman of truth? Well, you need to do that. And you need to be that. We, the church, are truth people living daily in a world of lies and deception. Therefore, we ought to stand out. We ought to stand out for the glory of God. Again, Paul the Apostle indicates that our belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ, specifically in his incarnation, he really did come to earth. He took on flesh and blood. In his resurrection, he really did rise again from the dead and the grave. In his appearances, he really appeared to Peter. He really appeared to John and others. In his proclamation, there's not one path or one path among many. There's one path alone by which men may be saved. His salvation for all people, both Jew and Gentile. His ascension to righteous ruling right now in heaven at the right hand of God. All of these things are beliefs about Jesus Christ that form the foundation of our behavior in the church. Why should we be holy? Because we are held by holiness himself. Why should we love each other? Because we've been rescued out of this domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom righteousness dwells. Christ's own godliness. Not the godliness that we sort of muster up on our own, but Christ's own godliness fundamentally transforms and changes us as the church. How could we live any other way if we behold the truth, if we receive the truth, how could we behave any other way? So understand then that it was Timothy's tall task back in Ephesus. And likewise, Titus's tall task over in Crete in his letter to preach, to pray, to equip, 
to correct and to confront in order to see the church established and preserved in the truth. I've said it before, but I will say it again. And I don't say it to put Pastor Jerry up or Brad or myself up. Christian ministry is not for the faint of heart. Somebody said, if you can do anything else, go do it. You see how many requisite skills I have, don't you? (laughs) Our enemy, the devil, hates the truth. Hates the truth. And who are we? We are people of the truth. Therefore, our enemy, the devil, hates us. He's not okay with you. So he's not going to leave you alone. We need to understand that this is a spiritual battle. Now, one big reason why gospel ministry is not for wimps and not for mama's boys, though I love my mama, don't make no mistakes about that, is owing to the tragic reality of apostasy within the church, which, as Paul points out, stems from the present of deviant doctrine and false teaching around the church and in the church. Basically, all of the second half of 1 Timothy contains practical instructions for a pastor's relationship with different groups of people in the church. I'll help you see that as we go through these next several weeks. But all of 1 Timothy chapter 4 specifically concerns the integrity of a pastor's life and a pastor's lips, that is, his words and his witness, first negatively, with regards to those who are false teachers, and Timothy, in this instance's uh, uh, requirement to oppose them, but also in the second half of 1 Timothy 4, to the private and public use of Scripture positively to build up, to feed, and to guide the church of Jesus Christ. All of this chapter is, again, about how a pastor is to use his life and his lips to glorify God and to root out evil in the church. And so today... I, too, wanting to be an approved workman of Christ, a, a workman who not needs to be ashamed, a good servant of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in this passage, being trained. Literally, the, the word trained there in our text has the, the sense of being nourished in the words of faith and in the good doctrine. Because I want to be this way, we're going to look at false teachers and not dodge them. We're going to look at this passage together this morning. And the first thing that I think that Paul wants us to see today is simply the very fact and reality that false teachers and the ensuing inevitability or likelihood of apostasy now in this present evil age takes place in the church. In other words, we need to simply acknowledge that it's very possible that somebody that we love and somebody we've sat by for years could become apostate and leave the family of God. And that should stun us, it should sadden us, and it should sober us. Because that someone could be you. That someone could be any one of us. Notice what Paul says in verse 4, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, but or now, a, a real sharp, in the, in the language, a real sharp transition. He's, he's beginning a new direction here at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit clearly or explicitly or plainly states that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. 
I'm going to say many things this morning. This absolutely means that there are some who begin that don't end. They start out well, but they fall away. Now, we can get all sorts of hung up on were they Christian, were they not Christian. We'll talk more about that to come. But my point here is that just because you begin the race of faith, it is not a foregone conclusion that you will end the race of faith. And that's exactly what the Scripture is telling us right here. Let me remind you that less than a decade earlier, maybe on the order of eight years earlier, Paul himself had predicted the very presence of apostasy and false teaching there in Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Look at the text. I know, Paul says, this is when he's about to to, to get on the boat. He's, He's giving his final farewell to the Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, Paul says, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul said it was going to be like this. Listen, false teaching will never enter the church wearing the shirt, Doctrine of Satan. Instead, deceitful spirits, as one writer observed, cleverly drape their despicable doctrines in the respectable robes of religion with teaching that makes popular appeal to the lusts of the flesh, to power, to fear, to money, and to pleasure, and is presented in ways that are often often oozing with charm and charisma. You don't notice it's the devil when the devil walks through the doors. Remember what 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13 to verse 15. Paul also wrote this book. He says in reminding the church about the reality of false teaching, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even, notice, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. There are posers. There are pretenders. There are imposters with malicious motives in the church. Be alert. Be aware of them. Now the Greek verb, aphistomy, which means to fall away from, is the same word where we get the noun apostasia or apostasy. In our passage, it's used in the verbal sense, to fall away from something. But it's the same idea of being someone who departs from the truth. And here's, I really want you to understand what we're, what we're getting at this morning. The idea expressed here is a willing choice to betray or to turn away from something or someone. In other words, Somebody doesn't accidentally become an apostate. You don't have to worry about falling into apostasy. It is a conscious decision. It is a calculated choice. You don't become an apostate overnight, I suppose, is a way of saying it. 
Rather, they choose personally and pridefully to walk away from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And I dare say that most of us who've been around the church for any length of time, you know people that have done this. You know people that have started out and they've turned back. They've not just fallen away or fallen out of custom of going to church, they have actually renounced the head of the church. I don't believe in Jesus any longer. I don't love him anymore. I see no need for his local body. That's what we're talking about. Not being backslidden per se, saying, I'm walking my own path and Christ is not a part of it. That is the root of apostasy. Errant teaching is false teaching when four things, number one, it knowingly undermines a core biblical truth. We could just name a couple here. The inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture. If somebody begins to say, you know what, I'm not exactly sure that is the Word of God, they are on the road to apostasy. If somebody says, for example, you know, I'm not not exactly sure that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, they are not trifling with a tertiary doctrine. Those are core Christian distinctives. They're on the road to apostasy, perhaps. So it knowingly undermines a core biblical truth. But secondly, uh, errant teaching is false teaching when it enables a teacher's sinful behavior. And we're going to meet a few of these in just a few moments. When it leads others into sinful rebellion. An apostate is not content to walk alone. No, he or she wants to gather fellow rebels with them. Or fourthly, when they prey upon the goodwill of their listeners. An apostate, somebody who is walking as a false teacher, is a wolf walking among sheep. And they are ravenous and hungry for you. Now it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul anchors his understanding and warning of apostasy within what he calls the latter times. Do you know that? Notice that in the passage. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, the term latter times or latter days, perhaps, is actually a technical idea, in my opinion. Paul uses it here to refer, I'm going to give you a technical definition, to a period of time that was inaugurated by the coming of Jesus Christ. So, since Christ's first coming, we have been in the last days. Secondly, it is characterized by the presence of the Holy Spirit in and among the church of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and finally, it will be consummated at Christ's triumphal return in power and glory to establish his millennial kingdom on the earth. So if you notice that definition of what the last times is, it began at his coming. It is characterized by the presence of his spirit, and it will conclude or be consummated when Christ returns again. I think we're in the last times based upon that definition. And I also want to point out from a few passages of Scripture that Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul all had the same view on the last times. Remember, for example, Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus does not mince words when he says, Matthew 24, verse 9 and following, Then, friends, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another. 
and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a common denominator among all the passages I'm going to share with you now. There is a clear and sobering warning, and there's also a call to persevere, an encouragement to keep going in all of these passages, and certainly there by Jesus in Matthew 24. You could sum up what Jesus had to say this way, that the latter times will see a combination of people trusting in Christ and simultaneously forsaking him. And is that not what we see today? People still trust Jesus and praise God for it. That's why you're here. But also there are people turning their backs on Christ and on his church still today, indicative of the last times. We also read about this idea of apostasy in the letter of 1 John. Not the gospel, but 1 John chapter 2. Actually, several places, but 1 John chapter 2 is a key text for this particular topic. 1 John 2 verse 18, I'll read to verse 22, says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Note verse 19 especially. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? Notice what he says here, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Again, not some secondary or tertiary doctrine, but rather they deny the very person of Jesus. That's how you spot a counterfeit. They're denying the very heart of the gospel in the person of Christ. This is Antichrist, and it is he who denies the Father and the Son. Are we living in the last times? You better believe we're living in the last times. The apostle Peter likewise certainly thought so. In fact, much of Peter's second epistle calls Christians to be alert and to be on guard against the destructive heresies of false teachers in the church. Listen to these two passages from 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter begins, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. We'll hear about that in just a moment even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Guys, do you think Peter was just writing for those elect exiles in his day? Absolutely not. He was writing to them, and he was writing through them to you and to me to be ready and watching out for false teachers and heresy in our day. Chapter 3 of 2 Peter begins this way. Peter says, I am stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and, and commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. What is the denial here but the coming of Christ again, the imminent return of Jesus Christ? You can be an apostate for teaching false doctrine about Jesus in his character, but also in his return, in his return. Again, not only does the Bible tell us that false teachers will deny the very nature of Christ, they will deny that he's coming back for the church. Mark them and watch them. Finally, in terms of the prediction of these problem makers popping up among the saints in the last days, remember what Paul himself says in the pastoral letters. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, he writes, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. First takeaway that I want you to get today, and we really just have two big ones, is simply this. Recognize the reality and the danger of false teaching around us. Do not get complacent and lulled into sleep. Oh, surely Pastor Dan's okay. Surely Pastor Jerry's okay. Surely our elders are okay. No, you need to be a Berean every day in this church. Measure every word by the book, by the word of God. Every single word. Recognize the reality and danger of false teaching around here and on what you, what you see on television or what you hear on the internet waves. And notice that it has a diabolical intent to devour you away from Christ. That's what the devil wants. He wants you back. He wants you back. Now, secondly this morning, and we're going to close the second half of this sermon with this idea. What are the characteristics of this kind of false teaching? In other words, what do we need to be on the lookout for in the church today? Before I answer that, let me tell you, and this is just as important in our day, let me tell you what Paul does not have in mind when he's identifying false teaching and apostasy. Paul does not have in mind the in-house debate of Calvinism and Arminianism. If you don't have an idea what I'm talking about, see Pastor Jerry afterwards. (laughs) Calvinism and Arminianism. Paul is not focused on that, nor is Paul here grappling with the issues of complementarianism and egalitarianism. I believe another in-house orthodox debate. There are people, I believe, that are seriously wrong in that debate, but that does not make them apostate in that debate. 
Paul's not talking about that. Nor is Paul here talking about uh, this issue of credo-baptism and paedo-baptism. Again, there are not many different versions of baptism in the Bible, but having a false or a wrong view about the mode of baptism does not mean you're not a Christian. Paul is not talking about that. It's wrong of us to label somebody a false teacher for that. Understand that, church. He's also not talking about the issue of a premillennial versus amillennial understanding of eschatology. He's not talking about that. Nor is he talking about a cessationist or a continuationist view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you are completely lost in what I'm talking about in terms of these categories, Pastor Jerry would love to talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. (laughs) What Paul is talking about is gospel versus godless. He's talking about light versus dark. He's talking about Christ and antichrist, not legitimate interpretive dialogue, and even at times debate upon legitimate biblical interpretation. Do we understand one another? Be very, very careful when you slander a saint of Christ by calling them a false teacher simply because they disagree with you about how to interpret a particular passage. Be very careful. False teachers, to reiterate, knowingly twist and pervert and distort the truth of God into a rebellious, self-serving lie, being pawns of Satan in order to wreak havoc in God's house. That's what false teachers do. Denny Burke, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, put it this way. In terms of this particular passage, the exact beliefs of the false teachers in Ephesus are unclear. And I think that's a charitable statement. We at the very least know that they're forbidding marriage uh, and food that God has made. In other words, they're saying they're smarter than God. That's always what a false teacher is going to do. I know better than God does, and so they want you to listen to them. That's exactly what they're doing here. Paul, though, gives us some specifics in this context. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are, cle- are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Very quickly, deviant doctrine is deceitful, it is demonic, it is hypocritical, and it is unbiblical. False teachers malign the truth of God's word. False teachers magnify their own pet preferences. And false teachers minimize their sin and need for God's grace. False teachers major on the minors and miss out on what matters most, the grace and truth of Christ. It's not that false teachers are non-biblical and that's what makes them so dangerous. It's that they are unbiblical. They actually oftentimes know their Bible better than the rest of the people. That's what makes it ever so dangerous. So who are these false teachers and that we need to be on the lookout today? One of my favorite bloggers, I've mentioned him before, his name is Tim Challies. And I think he's written a blog post for every, every day for something like 15 to 20 years. That's unbelievable what he's done. That back on January the 31st of 2017, you can go in on his website and find this particular article that I'm using here as we close. He uh, wrote an article entitled, Seven False Teachers 
in the church today. And I just want to paraphrase much of what he has shared in that article because it's so helpful for us as we close this morning. The names are going to change, but the essence and the characteristics do not. The first false teacher that Challies points out is who we'll call the heretic. The heretic. The word heretic simply means a self-chosen opinion. The heretic is the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts as an essential teaching of Christian faith. They deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They deny the, the imminent return of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, notice, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The heretic today, and I'm going to mention a few names this morning, the heretic uh, has many faces today. They include Mormonism, they include Jehovah's Witness, they include the Christian scientist, and many others. We don't have time to label and name all the heretics. Anyone who boldly and brazenly tampers with the faith once delivered for the saints and teaches or encourages others to do the same is a heretic today. I'm going to give you a couple of pointers on what to do with them as I close in a moment. The second false teacher that Challies points out to us is the charlatan. The charlatan. He says, the charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith insofar as it can fill his wallet. Mark them. Watch out for them. Even Paul himself mentions the charlatan in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. He says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining, notice, that godliness is a means of gain. These people are shameless, and they are self-promoting. Many of today's prosperity gospel preachers, such as T.D. Jakes, and Joel Osteen, and Creflo Dollar, and Benny Hinn are modern expressions of false teachers known by Challies as the charlatan. The Bible tells us plainly to avoid them. I might put it this way, turn the channel. Turn the channel. The third false teacher to note in the church is the prophet. The prophet, Challies says, the prophet claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. New and authoritative words of prediction, teaching, rebuke, and encouragement. Their favorite word is next or new. In reality, though, he is commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting Christ's church. The scripture says in 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Sadly, Harold Camping comes to mind. Camping died in 2013, but he had uh, falsely predicted the, uh, the end of the world and really the return of Christ, though I believe he had some misgivings shortly before his death about such predictions. 
other cult leaders such as Jim Jones and David Koresh and even the author of the relatively recent best-selling book, Jesus Calling. Her name is Sarah Young, who audaciously claims that her writings contain new revelation as the very words of Jesus should be marked out and avoided as false teachers known as the prophet. Number four, Challies identifies false teacher number four as the abuser. The abuser. The abuser does just what his name says. He abuses his position of leadership by taking advantage of other people. He may be relatively correct about his theology, but his life and his heart is utter devoid of Christ's likeness and truth. 2 Peter 2 verse 2 and 3 says that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. This kind of false teacher destroys churches by dominating and devouring Christians. They prey upon you by their position and their power and influence. Sexual perversion, financial greed, and unchecked power are the abuser's calling cards. Be forewarned, friend. Any teacher whose life does not consistently, not perfectly, but consistently reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ may in fact be yet another false teacher known as the abuser in the church. Number five is the divider. The divider. Charlie states, the divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or to destroy a church. He gleefully divides brother from brother and sister from sister. We read about the divider in Jude, verses 18 to 21. Where the Bible says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is they who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads you to eternal life. Watch out for those who divide. The divider seems pious, but is really just pugnacious. He's Satan's lackey, just spoiling for another fight in the household of faith. Mark those who quarrel over words and minor doctrines. Mark them and avoid them. Don't let a divider through the back door of the church. Next is the tickler. The tickler. Tim says it is the tickler is the false teacher who cares for nothing, who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. He is the man pleaser rather than the God pleaser. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The tickler's theology is an inch deep, and his smile is a mile wide. You can likely catch him on your favorite Christian cable channel. He's every program director's dream preacher, for he always pulls down good ratings. The seventh and last false teacher to watch out for, Challies calls the speculator. The speculator. The speculator tosses aside the bulk of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess over matters that are trivial or novel. The spectator's favorite doctrine is whatever fad is fashionable lately. 
First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, and Hebrews 13, verse 9 warns us of the speculator with his strange teachings and his different doctrine. This is what Paul gets at in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, when he says, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, and avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So how do we deal with false teachers when we find them in the church? It's very simple, really, though it's hard to do. We mark them out, we remove them, we pray for them, and when all else fails, we avoid them. Mark them, remove them, pray for them, and avoid them. Paul says to Timothy that he would be a good servant of Christ Jesus if he puts these things before the brothers. I know it's not popular to preach a sermon like this. But ultimately, I'm not preaching for you. I'm preaching for Jesus. It's his church. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18 says this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It would break my heart, not to see you in glory. And that is exactly why I'm preaching this sermon today. Because if any of you are dabbling or dancing with any of these false teachers, I want to call you to repentance. I want to call you to truth. I want to call you to to love what is good and put off what is false. Because it is lies, lies, lies from the father of lies, according to John 8, 44, Satan himself. Run, and run to Jesus. Sad reality today is there is no shortage of heretics in the church and around it. Heretics, charlatans, prophets, abusers, dividers, ticklers, speculators, call them by any name, they smell just the same. Avoid them, mark them, pray for them, and hold close to each other. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that your word is, is so true. Everything you've put in that book is, is all that we need. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for that. We, we pray, O oh Lord, that we'd be faithful to, to know the book, to believe the book, and to live in light of it. And so, Father, we, we just we commit ourselves to you again. And I, I know I've used some some stern language this morning, but this is no laughing matter. This is serious business. So, Father, I pray that you'd help me and help our elders, and Lord, help everyone, for everyone has a role to play in this topic. Help us all, Lord, to love you well and to look after each other and to love the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.